It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. This episode includes dramatizations of violence, murder, child death, and some disturbing imagery. It also contains discussions of pornography. Please exercise caution for children under 13. Charles Millsaps felt like his skull was splitting. He was no stranger to headaches, but this stress-induced migraine was unbearable. His phone had been ringing non-stop the entire day. Reporters wanting a scoop. Vultures. He didn't have anything to say to these people. He swallowed another two Advil and looked back to the frantically scribbled notes on his desk. $13,000. It couldn't be that much. Charles shook his head and immediately regretted it as the world swayed around him. He needed a distraction from these lawsuits, so he opened MySpace. He didn't even notice the sunset. As the daylight receded, a chill ran up his spine. Charles had the strangest sense that someone was watching him. His eyes slid to the window. There it was, looming above his residence, the home he was responsible for the one that had caused him so much trouble, Franklin Castle. Something shifted in a third floor window. Charles blinked. The windows were boarded up. No one should be able to. His thoughts were interrupted when a shadow grinned at him from the turret. Charles threw his chair aside and went for the door, grabbing a flashlight. The grass was damp underfoot as he crossed the patch of land between the caretaker's hut and Franklin Castle. He directed the beam up at the sandstone edifice. The building loomed over him implacably. Its great windows looked darker than ever, wooden boards flush against them. Charles let out a disgusted grunt. The sooner he was rid of this place, the better. He lowered the flashlight beam. The moment the light passed from the tower window, a phantom face appeared. She laughed at him silently. He felt his heart plummet. He had heard stories of homeless vagrants breaking into the castle, but this, this was a child with an unnaturally pale, Welcome to Haunted Places, a ParCast original. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. You can find all episodes of Haunted Places and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Haunted Places for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Haunted in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. 
Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. Today's episode is part of our series on Halloween, where we delve into the fascinating traditions behind the world's scariest holiday. If you enjoy this episode of Haunted Places, be sure to check out the rest of the Parcast Presents Halloween feed on Spotify. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to Franklin Castle, a 138-year-old abandoned residence in Cleveland, Ohio, and discover why, to this day, it's haunted. Also known as the Tiedemann House, Franklin Castle stands out rather starkly on the modern streets of Cleveland, Ohio. The irregular sandstone building has been described as Gothic, Romanesque, or Chateau-esque by various amateur architects. However, architectural historian Tim Barrett had a different term for the castle's unique design, calling it High Victorian Eclectic. Franklin Castle was born in tragedy. It was constructed in 1881 by Hannes Tiedemann, a German immigrant whose children often died very young. He had lost two by the 1870s, and in the year Franklin Castle was completed, his eldest daughter, Emma, died of diabetes. His mother, Wiebke, also passed that same year. While none of these deaths occurred at Franklin Castle, the surviving Tiedemanns carried their grief through the threshold of their new home. All three children were exhumed and reburied in 1883. This seemed odd to many of the neighbors, and rumors of foul play grew in the aftermath of the exhumation. However, the true reason for this reburial is Hannes had borrowed the burial plot of a business partner and wanted to move them to his own. But no matter how innocent the reasons, death followed the Tiedemanns wherever they went. In 1895, only 12 years after moving into Franklin Castle, Hannes' wife, Louise, died of what the coroner described as a liver complaint. Two years later, Hannes Tiedemann moved out of Franklin Castle, but he was not able to escape tragedy, as his two remaining children, August and Dora, died in 1906. Having outlived his wife and all five of his children, Hannes passed away on January 19, 1908. And just a decade later, their former home would find itself occupied by the spirits of this tragedy. Anna believed in people. Her parents were brought up to be selfish and focused on individual success, but Anna had nobler intentions for herself. She wanted to help those who could not help themselves. So, she became a nurse. Her parents could not object to this career choice, and when the market crashed on Black Thursday, they were grateful their daughter didn't come begging at their doorstep. Even in the Depression, only a fool would jeopardize his health by refusing a house call. And so, Anna often found herself caring for wealthy patients who could not leave their beds. She preferred this to working out of a hospital. It gave her small glimpses into the lives of her fellow Ohioans, and traveling from house to house was good for her health. Mr. Stephen Kendrick was not an unpleasant patient, though he had the humorless manner of someone who spent a lifetime as an attorney. He was gracious and allowed her to determine what was best for his health. 
Too many older men insisted on attempting to prove their vitality, even when they were utterly helpless. Mr. Kendrick was not such a man. He let a nurse do her job. If only Mr. Kendrick's house wasn't so easy to get lost in. No matter how unassuming a man he was, the house always felt like Dracula's castle to Anna, cavernous and full of secrets. The servants seemed to find their way through the labyrinthine rooms with ease. But more often than not, Anna started for what she thought was the kitchen, only to find herself in the servants' quarters or Mr. Kendrick's home office. It was rather embarrassing. As she wandered through the spacious rooms, trying to find her bearings one October night, her embarrassment began to transform into fear. Every sound she made echoed, as if the house were announcing her presence to the entire world. Anna nearly jumped out of her skin when she heard footsteps. Above her, in what had to be the third floor, a series of thumps vibrated through the wood. It was like a child running from one end of the house to the other, or a pet, something light on its feet, but heavy enough to make a sound. It couldn't be the servants, for they had all gone to bed hours ago. Anna did not think Mr. Kendrick had any children. She made her way to the stairway and called up in a hushed voice to see if Mr. Kendrick was wandering about. The footsteps ceased. No response came from the landing above her. Anna did not like this one bit. Instead of following the sound, she turned right at the bottom of the staircase and into the servant's room. She didn't bother knocking for fear of waking everyone. She located the housekeeper, Mrs. Grady, and shook her gently. The woman awoke with a start, blinking at the nurse looming over her. Anna took a deep breath and explained. Mrs. Grady's heavily lidded eyes hardened as Anna described the footsteps she heard over her head. She told Anna that she may hear some strange things through the night, but it was a cat. Mrs. Grady turned over and lay back down, leaving Anna alone in the dark. Anna crept back up the stairs, ears pricked for any unusual sound. The building was silent. She slipped into Mr. Kendrick's room on the second floor and found him asleep. His fever was still strong, and his breath rasped in and out of his lungs like a bellows. He had definitely not been up and about a moment ago. She was just turning to leave when she heard it again, the thing that was neither her nor her patient. Anna felt the hairs on the back of her neck prickle. The sound of faint weeping drifted down from the third floor. That was no cat. Anna made her way to the staircase. She held her lantern ahead of her, casting the orange light into the darkness. She ascended, step after cautious step. The banister glinted in the darkness, richly varnished wood reflecting the lantern. Above it was the black maw of the third floor. The crying was just as distant as it had been a floor below. The third floor was mostly guest rooms. She was under the impression that no one was staying here, but perhaps the sleepy Mrs. Grady had forgotten to mention a weekend visitor. Anna shivered as she stepped out onto the landing. 
The lantern rattled in her shaking hands. She turned left. Nothing but shadows. Right. The dumbwaiter and the door to one of the guest rooms. A voice echoed up the shaft of the dumbwaiter. Tearful. Young. Pleading. And I couldn't quite make out what it said. But it sounded like... Mommy. The crying returned, louder than before. Anna opened the dumbwaiter and peered down into the shaft. There was nothing within. The rope swayed back and forth lazily, like silent wind chimes. Anna withdrew and listened. The sobbing came from behind her now, muffled by walls, but definitely there. She turned and crossed to the other side of the landing, ignoring the heavy pounding of her heart. Anna flung the nearest door open. She found herself staring out into a dark sitting room. The crying was still distant, now lurking behind another door on the far end. Before she had time to hesitate, Anna crossed the room and flung that door open as well. Her heart stuck in her throat. The tower room was perfectly still. Still, but not empty. A figure was crouched by the farthest window, head buried in its folded arms. Its shoulders shook with sobs. Anna approached it warily. It looked like a little girl, perhaps an orphan who had slipped in an open window and gotten lost inside the house. Its clothing was old, practically Victorian, with a ring of soot around the hem. Anna kneeled down and introduced herself to the child. She would help her find a way out. The child raised its head. When Anna saw its face, all warmth vanished from her body. Tears traced lines down its cheeks. But that was not the detail that caught Anna's attention. It had no eyes. One of the earliest known instances of a haunting in Franklin Castle came in the early 1930s. A nurse was working a night shift for the attorney who lived there at the time. She heard what sounded like a child crying from the floor above her, and the servants waved off her concerns. The next morning, she said that she never wanted to set foot in the house again. But hers was not the only ghost story from around that time period. Edna Shirky was married to Dr. Ulysses Sherman Leroy Shirky, the third owner of Franklin Castle. Years after they had moved, she told her grandchildren stories of objects changing location without ever being moved, and her covers being ripped from her bed in the middle of the night. Many would suggest these are the ghosts of Hannes Tiedemann's children, unable to rest due to the constant sense of tragedy and death that surrounded their family. However, no one has positively identified these apparitions. The origin of the crying children and ominous sounds echoing throughout the house remained a mystery. And as the decades rolled on, the spirits only became more active. Up next, Franklin Castle's ghosts start to appear before its inhabitants. Now, back to the story. Built in 1881, 
Cleveland's Franklin Castle was an impressive feat of architecture, incorporating a number of Victorian and Gothic styles into its design. When its original owner, Hannes Tiedemann, sold it in 1897, it seemed like just that, an elaborate house. But as it passed from owner to owner, stories circulated of strange occurrences in the building's walls. From the late 1920s to the 1960s, the building was home of the Bildungsverein Eintracht Club, a German men's singing group. This attracted some suspicion during the Second World War, and rumors of Nazi espionage would persist long after they had sold the property. None of these rumors have been substantiated, and according to interviews with members of the club, no one experienced any hauntings during this period. That would change suddenly in 1968, when they sold the house to the family of James and Dolores Romano. In January of 1968, the Romano family moved into Franklin Castle. Their twin children, Jimmy and Dee Dee, immediately explored the house, running up the stairs and out of their parents' sight. A few minutes later, the children ran back downstairs, asking if their parents could give them a cookie for their friend. When asked who their friend was, they described her as a young girl who was crying on the fourth floor. Jimmy and Dee Dee continued to see this friend throughout their childhood until they grew up and learned that this was not normal and began to fear encounters with the mysterious girl. Soon, she stopped appearing to them at all. But the next owner of the house would receive a nasty surprise, which may provide a clue about where this ghost girl came from. <laughs> Eleanor hated being a chaperone. She was 15 and too cool to be shepherding her pack of younger siblings around the neighborhood. But Billy, Luke, and Mary Catherine wanted to visit Franklin Castle for Halloween, and her parents insisted she accompany them. Eleanor suspected that this was her parents' way of keeping her from spending the holiday with her so-called dopehead friends. Eleanor had to laugh at their suspicion. Her friends may get high now and then, but they were far from dangerous. She sighed. Ever since Easy Rider came out, her parents thought every teenager was a society-rejecting drug fiend waiting to happen. She brushed these thoughts out of her mind and resigned herself to guiding her three little siblings down 44th Street. They passed clusters of whooping trick-or-treaters, swinging their bags of candy haphazardly. Eleanor made sure not to lose any of her siblings in the shuffle. Franklin Castle stood by itself, up ahead. Eleanor looked down at her charges. Their eyes and mouths were wide open in awe at the imposing, towered building. All except Mary Catherine, whose face remained blank, almost bored. Eleanor had to stop herself from rolling her eyes. Mary Catherine was the second oldest, so she always wanted to act cool, just like her sister. It wasn't even dark yet, and already there was a sizable crowd gathered in front of the old Tiedemann house. Figures shifted in the walls. Lights flickered from within. Enormous stone lions loomed over the expectant crowds, jack-o'-lanterns grinning beside their paws. The tall double doors at the front of the castle opened, and a man emerged. He was dressed all in black and carried an ornate lantern by his face. 
He beckoned for everyone to come in. As each person approached, he held out a hand and they paid him for entrance. Eleanor dug at her pockets and produced the cash their parents had given them. She had hoped they could just sneak in amongst the crowd, but the man at the door clearly had sharp eyes for anyone who slipped in without paying. Eleanor approached the man and handed him the money. He grinned greedily at her and rifled through the bills. A moment later, his smile softened and he handed a portion of the money back. She had paid too much, he said. Eleanor said she hadn't. She had paid for four. The man pointed out, with a sigh, that there were only three of them. Eleanor whirled around. Mary Catherine was missing. Eleanor turned and instructed Luke and Theo to stay by the nearest lion. She had to go find their sister. They nodded, and Eleanor instantly took off at a run down the front lawn of the castle, shouldering her way through the trick-or-treaters. She stepped out onto the sidewalk and looked both directions. There was no sign of her sister. As she took several cautious steps in one direction, a black shadow on the side of Franklin Castle caught her eye. She turned. Her sister's silhouette vanished around the back of the house. She retraced her steps and darted around the side path. Mary Catherine may be a stoic child, but she was still highly curious. With a sinking feeling, Eleanor realized where her sister had gone. Inside the house. Eleanor was shivering with anxiety. She didn't like going into someone else's home uninvited. But it wasn't her decision. It was her reckless little sister. There were no light bulbs inside, only the occasional candle, probably to increase the spookiness of the ghost tour. A loud buzz sounded from a nearby corner. Eleanor nearly jumped out of her skin until she saw the buzzer fixed to the wall. Just a cheap parlor trick. She couldn't believe she had fallen for it. As loudly as she dared, she called her sister's name. She heard some footsteps from the floor above her. Maybe her sister. Maybe one of the homeowners. She couldn't be too careful. She followed them, keeping to the shadows. Up one floor. Two. The candles grew sparser as she ascended the staircase, replaced by the faint moonlight filtering through the windows. The colors of the walls faded from dull yellow to dull blue. The silence was shattered by a horrible groaning echoing in the walls, like the squealing of rusted metal. It was like the house was taking a raspy breath. Then, it was quiet again. The only things Eleanor could see were brick walls and slivers of faint blue windows. The rest was gloom. While she searched the darkness for Mary Catherine, she heard a knocking nearby. Eleanor turned sharply in the direction of the noise. It seemed to be coming from behind a door on the other side of the landing. As she approached, she saw it shake ever so slightly on its hinges. Someone was trapped within. She rolled her eyes. Mary Catherine must have gotten herself trapped in the room. Eleanor's fingers slid along the wood, searching for a door handle. 
some strange movement caught her eyes, and she squinted towards the grain. Patterns in the wood shifted before her, moving lazily like ripples in a lake. Eleanor peered closer. The squirming of the wood grew more rapid, nodding and twisting until it formed eyes. And below the eyes, a mouth grinned, full of splintering teeth. Elnor let out a shriek and shoved the door violently. It gave and flew open, banging against the opposite wall. As the horrible face flew inward, a wave of icy cold air struck Eleanor. Her teeth clattered together, and goose flesh spread up her spine. She had to find her sister soon. Every moment she spent inside these walls felt like a risk. What would happen if the owners caught her snooping? She took a deep breath and stepped into the room, calling for Mary Catherine. The murky gloom of the house turned almost pitch black as she stepped through the doorway. She held her hands six inches from her face and saw nothing. She was alone in the smothering blackness. She stepped forward and struck a wall. Eleanor turned and reached out, attempting to feel her way back to the door. Her hand touched cold stone. That wasn't possible. By the way her footsteps echoed, she was sure the room was larger. Had the walls closed in around her? She reached her hands out, trying to guide herself out, but the walls closed tight around her. She was trapped within the walls. She started to beat against them and screamed. She called for Mary Catherine, Luke, Billy, anyone who could hear her. Her gaze fell to her feet, and she finally saw something. Murky gray images resolving from the inky blackness below her. The gray turned to white, and she realized what she was looking at. Bones. She was standing in a pit full of decaying skeletons. Slowly but surely, Eleanor began to sink. The horrible pit of bones was drawing her down amongst them. She kicked furiously, trying to fight her way out of the clattering mass. But no matter how hard she fought, the jagged ivory remains continued subsuming her. As a ribcage closed over her head, she flung herself with all her might at the walls and felt her shoulder meet wood rather than stone. She burst out of the guest room and was greeted by a chorus of screams. She had run into the Halloween tour group. Luke and Billy practically jumped 10 feet into the air. Eleanor caught a glimpse of Mary Catherine joining the rear of the group as if she had been with them the whole time. The practice of doing Halloween tours at Franklin Castle began with James Romano, who purchased a pair of stone lions to stand guard by the front of the house. He started by charging a dollar a person, eventually raising the price to five as the castle's infamy grew. This practice was continued by Romano's successor, Sam Muscatello, who rented the building as his home in 1975 and 1976. However, in Muscatello's first year of living there, he made a horrible discovery. 
Muscatella was cutting through a wall in a third-floor guest room when he discovered a small space in between the walls. The sealed-up room contained several human bones, part of a pelvis and two femurs. A coroner took a look at the bones and determined that they were very old. Not able to glean any more information about them, the remains were cremated and buried with little ceremony. Soon after they were found, James Romano canceled Muscatello's leasing contract, insisting that Muscatello had planted the remains to gain publicity for the property. This allegation has never been proven, and Connie Fleming, sister-in-law of the local pastor, claimed to have witnessed Muscatello opening the sealed room, saying there was no way he could have planted them. It is possible these bones were part of a cadaver used for surgical experiments, as the house once belonged to a doctor, but determining the truth of the matter is now impossible. Soon, Franklin Castle would be abandoned completely. But even without a resident, the Tiedemann House would not fall silent. We'll discuss the final chapter in Franklin Castle's history in a moment. Now, back to the story. Franklin Castle's reputation as the most haunted house in Ohio came seemingly out of nowhere. It started as a series of rumors that then grew into actual ghost sightings. By the time human bones were found behind the walls in 1975, its reputation was well known among the residents of Cleveland. In the most dramatic example, Karen Dillon Brown, a babysitter for the Romanos, described getting pushed down the stairs by an invisible force. This unsettling presence affected its atmosphere as well. Throughout its history, many residents have found the room that used to belong to Louise Tiedemann on the third floor was slightly colder than the rest of the house, no matter how they attempted to warm it. The last person to use Franklin Castle as a residence was Michael Devinko, Judy Garland's widower. At one point, someone overheard Devinko saying that on the night he moved in, Franklin Castle made the house in Robert Wise's The Haunting seem tame. He would grow more flippant about it in the following years, repeatedly claiming he did not believe in ghosts. In 1992, he put up the house for sale. No one bought it, and it fell into disrepair. The house remained quiet until April 14th of 1999, when Michelle Heimberger, the 100th employee of Yahoo, purchased the rundown property for $350,000. In her first six months as owner, she threw two parties. The first, in May 1999, was a castle-warming party, and the second was a massive Halloween party. Supposedly, word of mouth surrounding the Halloween party was so strong that it attracted a number of gate crashers, and some of these gate crashers left the back door open. Dorian could not believe their luck. The back door to Franklin Castle had been left unlocked. They did not even have to force it. Dorian had a theory that houses under renovation were the best to break into for temporary shelter. There were no sudden overnight arrivals, and the houses weren't likely to come crashing down on their heads. 
on these cold November nights. An empty house was miles better than a flimsy tent. Last winter, he had seen some of his friends suffer horribly in the cold. Some had even lost fingers and toes to the biting wind. After seeing a little toe snap off a friend's foot like an icicle, Dorian was resolved to never let that happen to him. Dorian beckoned for Joe and Stephen to join him. The three men shuffled into the dingy space, stepping lightly in case there was glass or sharp debris on the floor. Almost no light followed them. Boards over the windows prevented anyone from seeing in. Stephen lit a match and they looked around. The floors were worn wood and the brick lining had clearly seen better days. But with a little effort, Dorian could picture how it must have looked in its heyday, glamorous and cozy. By the dim, flickering light of Stephen's match, they made their way through the spacious rooms. A bottle of whiskey passed between them, all the better to keep the cold at bay. Somehow, this building didn't feel much warmer than the outside. Stephen divided the matches, and the three men spread out about the house. Dorian almost giggled at the thought of getting his own room for the night. What a treat. He wasn't sure how he'd handle it. He climbed the stairs eagerly, determined to rest in the highest room he could. Heat rises in houses like this, he reasoned, and he wanted to be as warm as possible tonight. As he passed the third floor, he felt a blast of cold air. A draft was inevitable, Dorian thought to himself. He kept going hoping that the fourth floor was slightly less windy. He was relieved when he found that the topmost level was relatively well insulated, even if it was just one vast room. He sat down and peered out the window onto the street below. It was empty. No cops, no builders, no one to keep him from getting a good night's sleep. A pair of heavy footsteps sounded from the stairway. Someone was coming. Dorian turned to see the entranceway filled by a shadow, deeper than the dimly lit walls around it. It was shaped like a man. Joe! Dorian told Joe to find his own room, but he did not respond. His head twitched like he was regarding Dorian. Then, he asked Dorian what he was doing in the house. Dorian blinked. He patiently explained to his friend that they were spending the night here. The figure stood in the doorway, unmoving. Joe told Dorian to leave his house. Dorian was at a loss for what to say, so he quipped that Joe didn't own the place. Squatters' rights only went so far in the state of Ohio. Then. The figure screamed. The shadow crossed the old ballroom in a heartbeat, practically blotting out Dorian's vision. Hands closed around Dorian's collar and lifted him off the floor. Joe's hands were cold, icy. Dorian tried to pry the freezing hands from his throat, but they were unyielding. He fumbled in his pocket and produced a match. He struck it. A small light blazed between the two of them, and for a moment, Dorian saw Joe's eyes. Not the eyes of a furious killer, but frightened, tear-filled ones. 
like he could not understand what his body was doing. The cold hands loosened ever so slightly, and Dorian dropped back to the floor, not letting the thing that was once his friend get a hold of him again. He scrambled to his feet and ran down the stairs as fast as he dared. He stopped at the second floor landing and looked back up into the darkness, listening for heavy footsteps following him. He heard nothing, but he felt something. Not a wind, but a force, like gentle hands running along his arms. It made him shiver, and then it shoved him. The world spun around Dorian, sharp wooden corners bashing his head and arms as he tried to slow his fall. His forehead struck the banister, and his vision filled with spots of white light. Then, after what felt like an eternity of dizzying pain, he landed on the first floor, entire body aching. And finally, he heard the footsteps approaching again. Forcing his strained muscles to work, Dorian rose from his crumpled pose and flung himself into the darkness. He barely knew where he was going, but he had to find Stephen. He had to warn him about their homicidal companion. He found Stephen still in the boiler room, nursing a small fire. He ran up to him and told him they needed to go. Stephen looked up in confusion. Joe's unearthly cry cut off any verbal response. The two men turned to see their friend in the doorway. He was hunched over in an unnatural way, as if some strange force was dragging his shoulders forward. He approached, screaming at them. He grabbed a hold of Stephen, just as he'd done earlier, and lifted him. His feet struck the flame, sending glowing embers spinning through the atmosphere. Dorian searched the floor until finally he found what he was looking for, a wooden plank, perfectly solid. He grasped it, wincing as splinters dug under his skin. He would worry about those later. He hefted the board and swung it against Joe's skull. The board struck home with a heavy crack. Joe's head jerked to the side, and he relaxed, falling onto the floorboards. Dorian and Stephen stood in the room, breathing heavily. But they only had so much time to relax. The fire had started to spread. On November 6, 1999, a fire started in the basement of Franklin Castle. At 11 p.m., the fire department rushed to the aid of the historic structure. They found a 29-year-old homeless man passed out within. He reeked of alcohol and rambled about two other men with him, but these companions were never found. Though she still owned the property, Michelle Heimberger could not effectively manage repairs herself, so she turned it over to a man named Charles Millsaps, who took on the role of caretaker. For years, he publicly claimed that the house would be renovated to become an exclusive Franklin Castle Club, and he started taking advance reservations. Soon, however, new details came to light that cast doubts on Millsap's strategies. None of the photos on the official website showed any interior renovations being done, and Millsap's soon was targeted by day laborers for unpaid wages. 
To make matters worse, a picture of Millsaps under the name of Chad Lazaroff showed up on a MySpace advertisement looking for pornographic film performers. Millsaps claimed this was a pseudonym a friend used to produce pornographic films, which his friend readily confirmed. However, a May 2006 message from this MySpace account read, All the girls and guys say hi, and of course, we miss you around the castle. Soon afterward, Millsaps was relieved of his post, and Heimberger sold the house. The current owners claimed to be renovating it for use as a residence once again, but all work on it has been silent. The official website has been down for years, and the Facebook page for the property bears the single message, work in progress, stay tuned. Franklin Castle, the home of wild parties, lavish lifestyles, and a number of enigmatic ghosts. The house that was once open to tours for a price is now shut down. A private property sign hanging by its recently repainted red door. If you find yourself in West Cleveland, be sure to walk down Franklin Boulevard. And as you pass Franklin Castle, give it a look. You may find someone or something staring at you from behind its crimson curtain. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. For more information on Franklin Castle, we found Haunted Franklin Castle by William G. Krejci and John W. Myers particularly helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite podcast originals, like Haunted Places, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Haunted Places on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Haunted Places in the search bar. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Liebeskind, and Carly Madden. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Robert Teamstra. I'm Greg Polson. <laughs>